0: The scripture reading this evening is Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder, for the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David in his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onwards and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, it was uh, springtime in 1996. I was 17 years old living in South Orange County where I grew up. My friends and I liked to go surfing on a pretty regular basis and we would hit all the spots from Oceanside up to Newport Beach on uh, the Southern California coast. Well, one night, three of us were hanging out late at night, hanging out up late at night, and it was, a, it was about 1130, getting close to midnight, and one of my friends said, we should go night surfing. Well, none of us had ever been night surfing before, but um, it was a full moon out, so we figured this would be a good time to try it. You know, we could probably see a little bit from the light of the moon. And so we grabbed our surfboards and our wetsuits, and we jumped in the car, and we headed down to San Clemente Pier, which is about a 20-minute drive. Well, when we got out of the car, we looked up and noticed that the marine layer had covered the light of the moon, so in fact it wasn't bright out at all. It was dark. Um, But nonetheless, we had already made the drive and we figured well, surely the, uh, the light on the pier will give us enough light to see the waves when we're in the water trying to surf and catch some waves, so let's do it anyway. We put on our wetsuits, we grabbed our boards, went down to the beach, and of course, The light on the pier was out. Turns out it was almost pitch black outside, but we were committed at this point. So we jumped in the water at the same time and we all started paddling out. We were going to try to catch some waves in the dark. After about 30 seconds, I could no longer see or hear. Either of my friends, the, the the sound of the waves were too loud. It was too dark. The only thing you could really see was a little bit of shimmering of the white water after the waves had crashed. But nonetheless, um, I had paddled through and under a few waves and made it out past the the breakers where we would wait for a set of waves to come in. Waves come in sets of about five or seven, one after another, and then there's about a a seven to ten minute lull in between the sets. So I got out there thinking, well, maybe I could sense a wave if it comes in a set and, uh, and maybe catch it at the last second. And if I paddle hard enough, so I waited for about seven minutes and hoping for a set to come and sure enough, a, a set came, and sure enough, I wasn 't far enough out, and sure enough, the wave crashed and broke right on my head, sending me flying off my board and, and over the falls and tumbling through the water. By the time I uh, came up, I gasped for air, I grabbed my board, got back on my board, and sure enough, the next wave in the set came and did the same thing, and I went tumbling again. By the time I got up the second time, I was in a panic. Have you ever been in a, in a sheer darkness before? It is terrifying when you can't see your way around, totally disoriented. And I thought to myself, surely these waves must be 10 feet high. They were only about a foot and a half, maybe two feet high. Surely there's a shark right underneath me that's gonna eat me. Surely the Loch Ness monster's gonna get me if the shark doesn't. I started thinking of everything, imagining the worst case scenario. After about 20 minutes of this, I basically washed up onto the beach like a whale with water coming out my nose and sand in my teeth. My two friends eventually joined me and we had a good laugh about this. I was totally disoriented in this moment. It was the first and last time I had ever been night surfing. I've always thought about this experience as a metaphor for what happens in our lives because every single one of us will find ourselves in a place of darkness, powerless, out of control, and in need of help. I think about uh, folks in our congregation, Uh, more than a handful have lost a loved one or a friend this um, past year, and this is your first Christmas without that person. It might be hard to sing joy to the world on a night like tonight. Beyond grief, of course, there are other forms of darkness in our lives. Sometimes it's mental illness, anxiety, depression, Sometimes it's conflict with family or friends that we've been alienated from. Sometimes it's divorce. Sometimes it's physical illness. Sometimes it's job loss, economic uncertainty. A thousand different things can bring darkness into our lives and into our world. And every single one of us have experienced it, and we will experience it again. This is the way life works. There's darkness and there's light. Darkness and light. And when we're walking through those periods of darkness, Christmas can seem to some almost like a cruel hoax. We think about chestnuts roasting on an open fire, and we get this idea that Christmas is a holiday that proclaims sweetness and sentimentality. But our lives are not sweet and sentimental all the time, are they? And so we wonder, how can Christmas speak to us? Because that's not our reality right now, if that's what you're going through. So I want to make this crystal clear, regardless of whether we find ourselves walking in a season of darkness or walking through a, a season of relative light. Christmas is not a Pollyanna promise that everything is just going to be delightful if you just believe in Jesus. No, Christmas is God's response to the darkness in our lives and in our world. It's God saying, in your darkness, I will not abandon you. I am not going to let you go. And so the times when we feel like we're walking in a, in a season of darkness, those are the times when we need Christmas the most. And I just want to think about this for a moment. When it comes to the Bible, a lot of people think that the Bible is, is this book of just Pollyanna promises and spiritual platitudes. But the Bible is actually largely a story about people who were living in darkness and pain and God's response to that darkness and how they found the strength to, to live on in faith. I think about Abraham and Sarah who struggled with infertility for multiple decades. And if you've ever struggled with infertility, you know the pain of that. There were several couples in the Bible who shared that same struggle. I think about Joseph, who who was uh, unjustly prisoned for many years, which makes me think about the many in our world who find themselves unjustly prisoned or wrongly imprisoned um, due to human error, whether it's intentional or not. I think about the Israelites and being enslaved and oppressed under the Egyptians for generations. Or what about Job, whose name actually means unjust suffering, Or I think about the psalms where nearly half of the psalms are laments where the psalmist is complaining to God. Where are you, God? Why can I not see you now? There's actually a whole book on complaints in the Bible. It's called Lamentations and it literally means complaints. Almost all of the prophets that we read in the Old Testament were people who were walking in dark times First, the prophets were warning about these dark times, and then there was hope in the aftermath of the dark times. And then we look at, G- at the New Testament, and Jesus at the age of 33 was unjustly crucified and tortured by the Romans. Almost all the apostles tortured, imprisoned, and put to death for their faith. This is not a book about candy canes and elves. It's a book about how people face darkness. Darkness. And here's what the biblical author said, that though we know about the darkness and live in the darkness, have experienced the darkness, the darkness will not have the final word. Why? Because we believe that God is with us in the midst of the darkness. He will not abandon us and somehow he's going to force light into this dark world. And it might not happen tomorrow, but it's coming. And this is what we see in the book of Isaiah. We've been in the prophecies of Isaiah for this uh, season of Advent this year. And last week, Pastor Bree pointed out that during the time that Isaiah was writing this, the uh, Israelites in the northern kingdom were at war with the the Jews in the southern kingdom of Judah for about two years. They were battling each other. And then there was another little tiny kingdom called the kingdom of Aram, which is where modern-day Syria is or at least a small part of it, up by Damascus. And they join in the fray, and there's three tiny little kingdoms that are battling each other and at war with each other. And what's about to happen is that this monstrosity known as the Assyrian Empire, the largest and most powerful empire on the planet um, at the time, is about to send their troops in to utterly obliterate the Arameans. They're going to take most of the property of the Israel and then they're going to once again subjugate the Jews in Judah. This is a nightmare. It's horrible. Thousands of people died. Cities laid to waste. And Isaiah predicted this. He said, "This is coming. This darkness is coming." And he warns about the gloom and the pain. And and then, but throughout the warnings and the gloom, he sprinkles in hope along the way. And so he comes back in chapter 9 and this is what he says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Isaiah is speaking in what is called the prophetic present. That is, he's, he's seeing things in the future, he's imagining them in the future, but he's writing about them as though they've already happened. He's saying, listen, this is going to happen. Darkness is not going to have the final word. You will find light again and life again. The light will dawn upon you. Just hold on. Don't give up because it's coming. Now according to to the research that I've done, Isaiah I think believed that this light would come through a king. This is in 732 BC when he writes these words and the crown prince at the time was a man or was a boy named Hezekiah. He was 9 years old when Isaiah wrote these words in 732 BC. Hezekiah means God is my strength. And Isaiah likely believed that when the crown prince becomes king, God is going to use him. You can sort of see this in his mind's eye. He's going to restore the kingdom. He's going to bring peace once again. And he begins to write about this young king, this, this young prince who will hopefully become king. And he writes a poem about him. And that's what Isaiah 9 is, is this poem. And it says this, for a child has been born for us, a son given to us, authority. He rests on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are all royal titles for a king. And so he proclaims that perhaps Hezekiah is going to be that king, and Hezekiah takes the throne at the age of 20, and he begins to rule justly and with righteousness and compassion, and he becomes one of the best kings that Jerusalem has ever known but then he dies in battle, and he doesn't fulfill all of these things. So the next generation of Jews come along and they hold on to this text. It gets passed down from generation to generation, and they read these stories and these words of Isaiah, and they say as they're walking through darkness, maybe God will bring light for us too. Maybe God will send us a king like Hezekiah, Um, and every generation would look to these words, Hoping and praying that God would send this anointed one, this sent by God king, this Messiah. It became known as the messianic hope, the longing for a king who would be the ideal king as spelled out by the prophets. And so maybe he was thinking about Hezekiah, but his words built up a hope for generation and generation after generation, a promise, which then takes us all the way to the birth of Jesus, 700 years after Isaiah writes these words. Once again, 700 years later, the people of God are walking in darkness once again. This time, it's at the hands of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire runs all, you know, is in charge and is is, uh, in control of all of Palestine. The Romans had no problem crucifying a few hundred Jews if they felt they needed to at any point in time. And they had a puppet king who you know of as Herod the Great. Herod the Great was narcissistic, he was grandiose, he was paranoid, he was always feeling threatened that someone was going to try to take his throne. And so when his wife, his favorite wife, he had many, many wives, but when his favorite wife, he thought she might be trying to take the throne from him, he does what? He has her put to death. And then his eldest son, he starts to imagine that his oldest son is going to try to steal the throne from him. And so he has him put to death. And then he has his next oldest son put to death. This is just history. I mean, you can, you know, you can see what kind of man this guy, this guy is. And so the story around Christmas and what's going on around Christmas is pretty dark. It's pretty gloomy. It's not sweet sentimentalism. You remember when King Herod, um, of course, the wise men came to try to learn from him where they could find this uh, child who's been born king of the Jews, and, and Herod's paranoia really kicks in at that point, and so he puts out a decree that all the, um, all the boys, the Jewish boys under the age of two in Bethlehem would be slaughtered, and that's what he does. Um, this is a messy story. It's a violent story. It's dark and it's dirty. So Mary is nine months pregnant. They're a peasant couple, and they live 90 miles north of Bethlehem. And the emperor, all the way over in Rome, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, says, um, those people out there in Judea and Galilee, on the other side of the lake, on the, on the east side over there, in that whole region, what I want the what I want to have happen is I want all the men to take their families back to their hometowns so that we can get a good head count. And the reason we want a good head count is so that we can tax them heavily. That was the point of, of the census. And so um, that was the idea. Mary's nine months pregnant. Joseph has to go on a, on a 90 mile journey. Mary, I'm not going to leave you here alone. And so they make the journey together. Roughly nine days on foot. Um, Some people want to say that she was on a donkey. You might have seen pictures of her on a donkey. There's nowhere in the Bible that says she was on a donkey. We just feel bad about that, so we put her on a donkey. But she walked. She walked about 10 miles a day for nine days, and she goes over the Judean hills and the mountainside, and finally coming to Bethlehem. And guess what? She's going into labor. There were hundreds of people, maybe thousands coming to Bethlehem at the time and, and they apparently are late to the party, maybe because Mary's nine months pregnant, I, I'm not sure, but in any case when they arrive everything's full there's nowhere for them to go, there's nowhere for them to stay. Um, and except for a cave under a house where the animals were kept. That's what the stables were. You can find them all over Bethlehem. You can see the house, and then you can see the cave underneath. It's basically a temporary homeless shelter where they keep the animals. That's the only place they could find a temporary homeless shelter. The question that we're left with on Christmas Eve every year is, who is this child who was born? on that night. Who is this child? According to Luke, as this was happening in Bethlehem, nearby in the fields, angels showed up to these shepherds. And by the way, they didn't have wings, but uh, they were scary and powerful, strange beings. These angels, they show up where the shepherds are, and the shepherds are are there keeping watch over their flock by night. As you know, it's late at night. They're the night shift shepherds. You might remember that shepherds were the lowest um, in the economic sphere. They were, they were at the bottom of society and the night shift shepherds were the lowest of all the shepherds. So this is the bottom rung of all society and they're watching their sheep at night, maybe um, just kind of hanging out, keeping each other awake. Maybe they had a little fire and this stranger shows up and says this, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. And others who are apparently there began to shout out glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom he favors. This is the Christmas story. The messenger, according to Luke, just told us who this child is. He is the Messiah, the one who they had been hoping for, longing for, waiting for. Messiah means anointed one, sent by God. He is the Savior, which means rescuer, deliverer. He is the Lord, which means our highest authority, our most powerful person in any realm. This is what Christians believe about Jesus. We consider him our true king. In fact, over two billion people will be gathering tonight around the world to worship and to celebrate the birth of our king. And what does it look like to say that Jesus is your king? Well, f- well, for me, it begins every single morning when I wake up and I grab my cup of coffee and I have a seat. And I say, Jesus, help me to live for you once more again today. Be my king be my Lord, send me where you want me to go. Um, give me the words you want me to say. Help me to be aware of your presence with me. Be my King and my Lord today. That's what it means to be to consider Him our King, and Savior means rescuer or deliverer. In Greek, the word is soter. So, so uh, what do we need to be saved from? What do we need to be rescued from? Our sins. Well, yeah, that's part of the darkness that we experience in our lives and in our world. It's one aspect of darkness. The Apostle John wrote it like this. He said, if, if we say we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and don't do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. To sin means, in part, to turn away from the light of God. And I do that every time I say something that hurts someone else whom I love or care about. I do that every time I do something I later regret or don't do something I later regret not doing. It's our common experience. We all end up hurting people and hurting ourselves and doing things we feel guilty about or ashamed about from time to time. And when we do this, it's not so much that we break God's law, that's the issue, it's that we break God's heart. And so there's one dimension that he saves us from through the power of forgiveness and reconciles us to himself. The other dimension of darkness that he saves us from is hopelessness. He saves us from feeling alone. He saves us from feeling unloved. He saves us from a life of meaninglessness. He saves us from feeling like there's nobody else who's bigger than we are who can come alongside us and help us. He saves us then from the fear of death by his own crucifixion and resurrection, and he saves us from death itself with the promise of eternal life. This is the greatest gift, and this is what Christians believe about Jesus. But here's one more thing to say about him, which is the most scandalous thing that the early Christians claimed about this baby who was born in that manger. They were Jews, all of them, and yet they, they said something that seemed absolutely heretical to the powers at be. They said that this baby in the manger is God himself that the essential nature of God has united with human flesh and God chose to come among us in the form of this baby. He came helpless and powerless, not in a palace, but in a temporary homeless shelter. And he grew up to be a man who would associate with sinners and tax collectors, people out of their minds, people who were broken, people who were marginalized, outcast, looked down on, people who felt unloved and unworthy and were rejected. And he would come to show them love and healing and deliverance and hope And he'd open the eyes of the blind and he makes makes the lame walk. And he would deliver those struggling from their own demons and set them free. And then God's love was demonstrated for us when he went to the cross. And Jesus hung there and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This is what he did. And the religious people hated him because he didn't conform to their idea of what it meant to be religious. Here's what Matthew says about Jesus. Just before Jesus begins his ministries, about 30 years old, it's in Matthew chapter four, and Jesus is getting ready to launch out. And just before that, he quotes, Isaiah chapter nine, right? So they're hold Matthew. This Jewish person is holding this text. Seven hundred years later, um, has been passed down through the community, and Matthew brings this text into their current context. And he says, "Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles." In other words, all you people here now, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. And right away, Jesus launches out into his public ministry of healing and preaching and proclaiming the good news that God's kingdom is available now. He is our light bearer. He is our light bearer. John says it this way. In him was life. And the light was the li- was, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Darkness doesn't get to have the final word. God does. But the question then remains, and I'll wrap it up with this. How do we actually experience light when we're walking through darkness? And I want to give just three really basic um, suggestions that you can take with you into your morning and into your week next week. The first, how do we experience light when we're going through, walking through darkness? The first is to practice gratitude. Practice giving thanks intentionally when you don't feel like it. Don't give thanks when you do, well do, but Especially when you don't feel like it. It's, it's not that, this is not like a guilt trip thing, like if you just, you know, if you're just more grateful, then you won't experience darkness. No, it's, in, in fact, it's the discipline of paying attention to the whole story, to the whole story. And so, if it's so dark you can't think of anything, then think of the smallest thing, that breath you just took or the fact that you can see or hear because some people can't. You get the idea. There is always light to be found. Always. There's this poem by Pablo Neruda that uh, I've been pondering in the past couple weeks. He wrote this, if each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Gratitude is the key that unlocks that prison. Paul put it like this, he said give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so, when we start looking for light in a dark world, that is when we realize that there are actually good things in the midst of pain. At every memorial service, not only do we gather and experience um, the pain of grief and loss, but we also celebrate and give thanks as we remember the remarkable person who touched our lives. The second thing that brings light into our darkness is generosity towards those who are in need. Towards those in need. Now, we're all being generous with our families and our friends, most of whom don't really need a whole lot. And this is wonderful. I love giving gifts to our children, my wife, my parents, friends. And I love receiving gifts, too. It's awesome. But uh, when the real light comes into the darkness is when we bless other people who are also in need, who are also walking in darkness themselves, people who are struggling. And that's why Isaiah writes this. He says, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light will, shall rise in the darkness and your gloom Be like the noon day. This is how we bring light into the world. This is how we follow the light of Christ. Um, Bless someone who's struggling. Stop to help. Care for them. Encourage them. Stand with them. And that's why every single year on Christmas Eve, we give 100% of our offering to serve and to help those who are in need. This year, um, all of our donations this year that we collect are going to three places. Hurricane Ian um, recovery in Florida, famine in East Africa, and the human-caused disasters in Ukraine. And so you are participating in this work just by coming here and participating in the offering tonight. The final thing that brings light into our darkness is the choice of faith. The choice of faith. It comes down to this. Here's the story. Here's the story. And here's the gospel that Christians have Believed since the beginning, those who saw him, those who touched him, those who knew him. This is what they said had happened. And they said that their lives were changed. And every generation after that, um, people who read and heard the gospel have said, I choose to believe this. Because at the end of the day, I can make a, a decent, maybe a pretty good case for the existence of God. Maybe even for the resurrection of Jesus. And someone else can make a pretty good case for the denial of the existence of God and the denial of the resurrection of Jesus. Neither one of them can be proven. At the end of the day, you have to choose what you're going to believe. You can choose the bad news or you can choose the good news, I suppose. But in any case, it is a choice. It's an act of the will to say I choose to trust that whenever I encounter darkness that because of Jesus Christ it will not have the final word. I made a decision to believe that Jesus can bring healing and hope to our lives and in the world. I made that decision when I was 16 and in following that decision I have come to understand more and more of this mysterious love of God and I continue to make this decision every day. It's a choice of faith that changes my life and brings light into my darkness. And so, part of what we're invited to do, the main thing that we're invited to do whenever we come to a worship service on Christmas Eve, is to simply believe it. To simply believe the story. To believe its truth. To believe in the birth of our king. To say yes to him to follow him, and to see what happens in your life. There's a lot of darkness in our world, and sometimes it envelops our lives. And when that happens, the goal is not to get used to the darkness. It's not to settle into the darkness. It's not to figure out who is to blame for the darkness. The goal is to find some light. The light of the world has come to us as a baby in a manger. He is Christ, the Lord. Let us pray. God, we thank you for sending Jesus, our light bearer. May we live for him. May we see his light in our lives and in the lives of others. And may we, by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring light into this dark world as we bear witness to the goodness that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.